0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.
1: I'm Sylvia Green, Director of Research at Cambridge Assessment. Um, I'm going to be introducing the seminar and we're going to have four presentations, as you'll know from the programme. What we intend to do is to run those presentations one after the other without any breaks. Um, The first of The presentations is from Jill Elliott. Jill is a a principal research officer in the research division and is actually head of the comparability team there. She's going to be giving us an historical perspective on some of the challenges of comparability. And then Paul, who's the director of the Cambridge Assessment Network, will be talking to us about the mythology of norm referencing, if I can put it that way. Tom Bramley then talks to us um, about the A number of research methods that we use, Tom is the Assistant Director in the Research Division and heads up the Psychometrics and Evaluation Team. And finally, Jackie, who's also a Principal Research Officer in the Division, will be talking to us about methods for comparing different types of qualifications. So there, briefly, are four presentations. Um, I'll hand over now to jill who's kicking us off in sometime around
0: about 1911 i think that's right thank you sylvia yes i'm i'm going back in time which is a bit of a habit of mine Um, now i wanted to have this quotation up as i introduce myself because it's relevant for a number of reasons Um, now as an organization we try to be open and honest about the challenges that are inherent in the education system and in the assessment processes. And I think comparability is is one of the big ones. Um, As Sylvia said, within the research division at Cambridge Assessment, there is a comparability programme in place. Um, And the remit for that is to provide a kind of cohesive strategy on comparability to carry out research of our own and to try and bring together some of the research from both within our organisation and outside of it. And I think all the members of the team and other people who've worked on comparability of the years, would, would absolutely concur with, with this quotation. But we didn't write it. It was written in 1911 by the Board of Education Consultative Committee who were reporting on examinations in secondary schools. Um, so what I wanted to do is just go back to this report and have a look at the problems that they had and, have a, and see if they, we can kind of take any lessons from that. We have, we have one great advantage over them in that we know what happened next. Um, So in 1911, comparability was a pressing issue. There were a large number of different bodies awarding qualifications, and they included not only the awarding bodies that we're familiar with and some that we're not, um, but also places like the College of Preceptors, the London Chamber of Commerce, the Four Inns of Court, and some that we're more familiar with now in other kind of senses, the Royal Society of British Architects, Um, the General Medical Council, and so on. Now, students were beginning to take those examinations um, run by those organisations in considerable numbers. And what what had developed was what they called a system of equivalence, um, whereby an organisation would take the qualification offered by another organisation in lieu of their own. However, it wasn't a simple as one might hope. Um, and as they say, it was hampered by intricate and confusing restrictions. Now, there were no- they also mention a couple of other factors which were affecting things at the time. First of all, that you need, you need different preparation for different careers, so you have to offer students a choice. And they laboured long and hard over, over that thought. They also observed... Mm that you've got different students with different levels of attainment and you can't always give them exactly the same examination. But what happened in the end and is described graphically is that there were certain qualifications that more students were were trying to take because they could be used in lieu of other ones. Mm -hmm. And what what they've ended up finding is that while candidates can obtain, for example, their Oxford Senior Certificate by passing in five subjects... No one single set of five subjects is accepted by all the exempting bodies. A candidate would have to pass in 11 subjects, arithmetic, English, maths, higher geometry, Latin, Greek, English, history, geography, French or German, chemistry or physics and a portion of New Testament in Greek. They don't state which portion to be sure that his certificate would be accepted by all the bodies who accept the Oxford senior certificate as qualifying a candidate for exemption from their matriculation or preliminary examination. If he only passed in the five subjects required by one particular body and then for any reason changed his plans, he might find his qualification quite useless to him, which is quite a sad state of affairs, really. Now, it was interesting that in 1911, they were very well aware of the problem of different purposes to which the results of qualifications are put. And they list six. A test of the ability of the candidate for admission to practice a profession. To ascertain the relative intellectual position of candidates for scholarship purposes. Competitive examinations used to recruit the public service. And there they're talking about the civil service and the Indian civil service. Examinations of pupils as tests of the efficiency of their teachers. And examinations used to diffuse a prescribed ideal of liberal culture, which essentially means a broad general education Now, post-1911, post this report, the recommendations um, led to the incorporation of two examinations into a single system. The school certificate, which they quote as as being breadth without specialism, and the higher school certificate, which was less general and geared much more to the needs of students who were aiming for universities and certain professions. They did also consider a, a... system whereby one examination might follow dual purpose. So with certificate for general ability plus a sort of distinction level that you could use to move into um, university and professional level. Now here is where we we get the advantage of some hindsight because the system was um, reviewed in 1943 by Norwood who immediately points to The problems that are emerging. So so in 1911 they had the problem of multiple qualifications not being accepted um, easily. So they moved to the idea of a single system which could be put to many different purposes. Norwood in 1943 reports, and this is specifically reporting about the particular two purposes which were the general certification and the use for university and professional um, matriculation, whether there was any chance of these two purposes being achieved simultaneously without one obscuring the other is open to doubt. It's easy to be wise after the event, um, but the history of the examination has shown that the second purpose rapidly overshadowed the first. And furthermore, and I think this is the part that I find very interesting, the higher certificate began to present problems... The whole system had been set up uh, based upon the notion that those students wanting to use their certification to enter university and enter professions would be small and the links with the universities would be close. But because the the new system was very attractive to students, partly because it was seen as, as much more equivalent, they could use things more widely, many more students wanted to make use of it. Because there were many more students making use of it, new courses were added which fitted less closely to the original conception of the system. So as the system evolved, so the comparability issues evolved with it. And that brings me to consideration um, of a question that I'd posed earlier on, which was Why is comparability so important? And three key things shake out of both the 1911 report and the Norwood review. Um, The first one is concerned with validity and reliability. This is from Norwood. If a test is to carry any weight outside the school, there must be some approximation to uniformity of standard in assessing attainment. I think we'd agree with that today. The next one is about providing students with a meaningful choice. Now, in 1911, they discussed this and said it should be valid wherever in the country they may go. I think these days we would now say valid wherever internationally they may go. And the second quotation is actually from from ourselves currently. Learners, education institutions and businesses need to be assured of the value of the qualification. And the third crucial importance is to do with the social responsibility of the awarding bodies um, and again, this is from Norwood. The test and the verdict must be objective. Conditions must be equal. There can be no prejudice and no favouritism. So having been able to track through what, what happened is, is really quite enlightening. And three things, I think, fall out of this. First of all, the thought that as qualifications evolve... So the underlying assumptions about those qualifications and about the system within which they are set change. That then affects the comparability issues. Estimations of comparability have to cope with, and this is, you know, sometimes dramatically, changing populations and evolving qualifications, which is kind of expanding on the first point. And lastly, the purposes to which a qualification is put has a crucial bearing upon its comparability um, so you can, you can talk about equivalence of particular attributes of a qualification, but not necessarily the whole thing all at once. And I'd like to illustrate that with an analogy. I'm afraid for those of you who, who come to many comparability talks, you're used to fruit analogies, and I'm not going to disappoint you. Um, I can present to you a situation where two-thirds of an apple equals nine strawberries, one banana, and three chunks of watermelon. I can also present a situation where one apple equals 50 strawberries, one and a half bananas and half a watermelon. Or we can have six apples, nine strawberries, six bananas and half a watermelon. It all depends on the definition you're applying when you align these things together. So in the first line, they're aligned approximately on weight. The second on sugar content. And the third, which has fallen off the bottom, on vitamin C content. Now, It's possible that, certainly in our fruit example, we could arrive at a solution which aligned on all those attributes simultaneously. I have a horrible feeling it would look something like that and we would lose the essence of what made the individual fruit themselves, as it were. And I don't think we want to do that with qualifications. Whether or not we'd go to that extent um, remains to be seen, But, I mean, I really want to stress that it's the context in which we put the claims of comparability that is crucial. Now, the Qualifications Assurance Agency for Higher Education has bitten this bullet. And they say it cannot be assumed that students graduating with the same classified degree from different institutions having studied different subjects will have achieved similar academic standards. It cannot be assumed that those graduating with the same degree from a particular institution having studied different subjects will have achieved similar standards. And it cannot be assumed that students graduating with the same degree from different institutions having studied the same subject, you have to kind of get your head around these, will have achieved similar academic standards. And they go on to add to that that these implications are implicitly acknowledged and accepted in the higher education sector. of long standing and many of those who make use of the degree classifications couple this information with their judgment and experience when when using it for employment or determining salaries so and i'm aware i'm running out of time fast very final point looking back at them this is from the 1911 report i just wanted to look back and say i think we have moved a long way in a hundred years they say there that there are at the present moment a large number of external examinations in secondary schools, the certificates of which cannot be said to always be accepted as valid equivalents. And today I think there are few qualifications which are not accepted as valid equivalents where they're thought to be so. And those that do exist are well known and the reasoning behind them is understood. However, I do think we've still got a long road ahead um, and comparability is always going to be an issue. It's not going to go away because it's going to evolve as qualifications change. Um, and the other thing to, to bear in mind that, that I felt having read these reports is remember that in 1911 they were struggling with the notion of comparability across multiple examinations. They, they changed to a system which was more, more to do with a, a single or a couple of examinations with multiple purposes. And what we have today is both going on. We have multiple qualifications being used for multiple purposes. Um, nevertheless, to end on a positive note, I think we do understand the issues very well. I think we've got a wealth of experience to fall back on. And not least documents like these where we can actually look at what happened next. And I'm going to draw to a close there. There are some references which hopefully have come out on your um, slides. Those reports are well worth going back to have a look at. And I'm going to hand over to Paul who's going to be talking about the myth of norm referencing.
2: Okay. Everyone knows that A-level pass rates have been rising for years. Um, And many people know that that hasn't always been the case. In fact, back in the 1960s and 1970s and early 1980s as well, there was remarkable stability in the pass rate. Why was that? Was it simply that the attainment of students was basically the same during the 1960s, 1970s and early 1980s? Not at all. Uh, It was essentially because the examination boards held the pass rates constant. The pass rate at A-level wasn't allowed to fluctuate. Back in the olden days, we were were operating a process of norm referencing and during the mid-80s, we transferred to a process of criterion referencing. That's how the story goes anyway. But the point of my presentation today is to say it isn't quite as straightforward as that. So what I'm going to do today is to essentially add a minor footnote to the history of examining in England uh, by saying that our examinations were never actually norm-referenced And they weren't actually criterion-referenced either. But I need to begin by clarifying my terms a bit. So I'll do so with three definitions that I'll put before you. The first of these is norm-referencing, which essentially involves ranking students in terms of their overall level of attainment, and then awarding grade A to the top 10%, grade B to the top 15%, and so on. Second, I've got criterion referencing, which means identifying exactly what students can do in the subject domain. And in fact, identifying exactly what they can do in each of the discrete elements of that subdomain. And then awarding grade A to those who've ticked all the criteria for the award of grade A in all of those subdomains. And then grade B to those who've um, achieved all of the grade... B performance criteria and it goes on like that and then finally I've got attainment referencing at the bottom something distinct in attainment referencing again you rank students in terms of their overall level of attainment just like you do in terms of norm referencing Uh, but this time you award grade a to students with a certain level of attainment and grade b to students with a certain level of attainment just a lower level of attainment if you like so those are my three basic definitions that I'll come back to throughout the, the talk Each of those different definitions has got different implications for comparability as well. Um, In terms of norm referencing, it essentially says that students with the same rank in their respective examinations should end up with the same grade. Criterion referencing says that students with the same profile of knowledge, skill and understanding across the subdomains should end up with the same grade. And attainment referencing, a bit more loose perhaps, is that students with the same overall level of attainment in their respective examinations ought to end up with the same grade. If there's any confusion over those, we can come back to them at the end, if you like. Okay, so the point of our presentation, then, is to dispel a widely believed myth, which goes something like this on the slide. It says, for the first 25 years or so, the maintenance of standards at A-levels relied substantially on the constraints of so-called norm-referencing. So a constant proportion of candidates in each subject each year was awarded the same grade. It differentiates only between those who took the test at the same time and the results have no validity from one year to the next. And that's a quotation from a paper by Sir William Stubbs, who was chairman of the QCA until September 2002. So you assume you know what he was talking about. So back in the bad old days, the story goes, uh, we used to define the A-level standard in terms of norm referencing, which which essentially meant that we awarded the same profile of grades across subjects, across boards, and across years. So norm referencing is blind to the quality of performance observed in scripts, which is why Will Stubbs said that uh, essentially trends over time are invalid under norm-referencing. Okay, so this is the principle then, the principle of norm-referencing. Norm-referencing is a definition of examination standards. And to apply the standard, for any examination, all you have to do, it's very easy, you just apply the same pass rate. And as I said, I'm going to demonstrate that pass rates have never been awarded like this. We've never been in a situation of using norm-referencing as a definition. But I do need to begin by explaining a little bit about why people think that we use to norm-reference. And I think that the myth goes back quite a lot further than the 1960s. um, But the 1960s began with a very important chapter in the story of A-level standards. And it was a publication of a report by the Secondary School Examinations Council... (coughs) on A-level examinations and the case for reforming them. The A-level was originally a pass-fail examination, certifying that students were qualified for university entrance, but by 1960 it had increasingly become a tool for competitive selection, which meant that the universities were asking for the students' marks, not just whether or not they'd passed, okay, which had led to cramming and mark-grubbing by the students. And the move from a pass-fail system to a graded system was meant to alleviate that to some extent. And the SSCC report on the left um, proposed that there should be five passing grades from A to E and then a compensatory O-level pass as well. It didn't actually specify how A-level standards should be set or how they should be maintained, but it did present these recommendations, these statistical recommendations for distributing grades. And it's this recommendation on the left that people tend to interpret in terms of this principle on the right. So in terms of the principle, 70% should pass German, 70% should pass uh, economics. Now, 70% should pass Uckles examinations, 70% should pass AEB examinations. 70% should pass in 1960s. 70% in 1986, and so on. And when looked at from one particular perspective, this perspective, overall results in England, it does seem as though this is what was happening from 1960 through to the middle of the 80s. This is a table from the Centre for Education and Employment Research at the University of Buckingham. And it does seem to illustrate a kind of striking norm-referencing-like stability in the grades from the early years to the middle of the 80s. And what happened in the middle of the 80s? Well... Uh, according to the rumour, according to the myth, uh, the change from norm-referencing to criterion-referencing. As this quotation from Scar says. This is actually a quotation from the 1996 report from Scar and Ofsted into standards at GCC and A-level. And this is actually the press release that accompanied it. And it said this, From 62 to 86, the proportion of candidates to be awarded each grade in major A-level subjects was effectively fixed So no increase could take place even if candidates' performance improved. This was changed in 87, when key grades were matched to the quality of candidates' work. This change from norm-referencing to criterion-referencing has permitted an increase in the proportion of candidates being awarded the grades. So it's fairly clear, isn't it? Fairly clear and officially sanctioned. This was the Scar-Ofsted position. From 1987 onwards, the story goes, pass rates were allowed to change to reflect the quality of student attainment. And pass rates, as we all know, have risen substantially, which therefore means that students um, nowadays are better than students back in 1987 when the change happened and when I took my A levels. So that's the story, and the story that even the officials buy into. What's the reality? These are data from the UCL's archive, uh, and they relate to the summer 1980 examinations. Um, if I call norm reference, then basically these results would flatline at around the 70% mark. Okay? In accounting, you can see right down at the end, and the pass rate was only 21%. I have to admit that there are only 42 candidates, okay? so maybe it's fair to say that they only norm reference for large entry subjects. On the other hand, you can see German there. Where's German? Towards the middle. Um, that's an 85% pass rate, and that's over... 1,300 candidates, versus economics, towards the end, only 68%, okay? So we've got large numbers of candidates, but a big difference in the pass rate. Similarly for biology, we've got a 70% pass rate, English literature, 77% pass rate. Doesn't look much like norm-referencing to me. Between boards... I've just added comparable data from the Associated Examining Board um, to that previous slide. Uh, you can see for geography, um, we've got a 68% pass rate for our calls. Contrast that with a 48% pass rate for AEB. That's nearly 20% difference there. Chemistry, we've got um, 73% pass rate for our calls. We've got a 44% pass rate for AEB. That's nearly 30% difference. Remember, this is, these are all meant to be Flatlining at 70% if normal referencing is true. French, we got 79% versus 66% for AEB, 13% different. Also, notice the more general point that almost all, I think all of the AEB uh, statistics apart from accounting are lower than the ACL statistics, and I think that's significant. It looks to me like the boards were actually trying to re- reflect not just differences in calibre across subjects, but also across boards somehow. Okay, so maybe the principle of norm-referencing wasn't applied across subjects and across boards, but maybe it was applied within boards, within subjects, so let's have a look at that. Again, these are data from the Uckles Archive from 1960 to 1986. They're taken from annual reports, so they're all in the public domain if you want to go and have a look. All I did was uh, to pick four subjects fairly randomly and then go and track their pass rates over time through those annual reports this is syllabus level data which is the the level at which awarding decisions are actually made so if you're going to see norm referencing anyway you ought really to be seeing it in these results the entry sizes are all fairly large Um, latin had the smallest entry size of all in 1986 with 246 candidates Um, but most of them are much higher than that they're in the thousands So, while standards were supposedly being norm referenced, uh, we've got a jump in French from 77% to 81% in just the one year. That's 77 to 78. We've got biology jumping from 70 to 76% in one year, 85 to 86. We've got Latin falling from 84% to 72% in just two years, which is 70 to 72. Again, remember, these are all meant to be flat lines. So during the supposed glory days of norm referencing, we've got um, the physics pass rate rising by 3%, the French pass rate rising by 15%, biology pass rate rising by 16%, and the Latin pass rate rising to 18, uh, by 18%. I think I have to reach a conclusion that A-level pass rates have never been norm referenced. So, to explain in a bit more depth why we think it might have been, if norm-referencing was never actually a definition of the A-level standard, why do we think it was? Well, I think it's because something like it was used and actually still is used as a fundamental component of grade awarding. So the A-level standard has always been defined in terms of attainment. So in a sense, A-level standards, my sense, A-level standards have always been attainment referenced. And the judgment of examiners has always been a critical feature of grade-awarding meetings. But examiners have also always respected a statistical rule of, th- of thumb, which goes something like, if the cohort hasn't changed much from one year to the next, then don't expect pass rates to rise much either. Okay? So just a rule of thumb, which I'm calling the similar cohort adage. So the board's triangulated evidence from examiner judgment of scripts with the principle that... Um, it's, pass rates aren't likely to change much if the cohort doesn't change to decide exactly where their boundaries ought to lie. And they did that in 1951 and they did it in 1960 and they did it in 1987 and they do it today. Okay? So I'm suggesting a story of little change there. What has changed to some extent over time has been the sophistication with which we can come up with our expectations of what the pass rate change is likely to be. I think it's fair to say that we once had to rely on fairly vague impressions of whether or not cohorts were changing. Then we moved to a stage of a slightly greater sophistication, where we were able to look at the implications of the change in the um, cohort composition in terms of gender and in terms of school type to get a slightly better handle on how pass rates might change. And then we come to the present day, for the past decade or so, the pass rate expectations have been uh, derived um, on the basis of some quite complex statistics uh, using GCC results as predictors. So we've become far more sophisticated in our statistical expectations. But in essence, we're not actually using statistics any differently now from how we used them 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, I think. Nor, in essence, are we actually using examiner judgment much differently. Which leads me to the conclusion that criterion referencing is no less of a myth than norm referencing Criterion referencing was being considered as an alternative to attainment referencing during the 70s and 80s. And you can see here Keith Joseph actually announced an aspiration to move towards criterion referencing in his 1984 North of England speech. But by the end of the 80s, the initiative had died a death. Essentially, it's just not how we like to do examination standards in the UK. So, by way of conclusion, what happened in 1987? Or more accurately, what did not happen in 1987? Well, in terms of the theory of grade awarding, there was no rejection of norm referencing as a principle because it's never been assumed. There was no adoption of criterion referencing as a principle because it's never been assumed. No rejection of attainment referencing as a principle because it's always been assumed. It hasn't always been called that, that's kind of my term, but that's essentially the principle that's always um, grounded it. In terms of the practice of grade awarding, no adoption of script comparison as a method, judgment's always been used in awarding, and no rejection of the similar cohort adage as a method, because statistics, again, have always been used, which I think is quite interesting, and I think actually it leaves us with a bit of an enigma, really. Because if the definition of the A-level standard hasn't actually changed substantially over the history of the A-level examination, and if the examining boards have continued to respect both the similar cohort adage and examiner judgment, then trends in pass rates from the 1960s to the present day are even more confusing to understand. Because not only do we have to understand the rise in pass rates from 1987 onwards, but we also have to have an explanation for why pass rates remained flat until that point. Unfortunately, for reasons of timing... I can't explore that ending any further here. I'll just have to leave it hanging, but maybe it's something that we can return to later. Thanks. I'm going to hand over now to Tom.
3: Thanks, Paul. Um, My talk is going to be about how we've approached the problem of developing methods to address comparability issues. And um, I'm going to have to start by talking about definitions a bit. I mean, sometimes it's a bit uh, tedious to get bogged down in definitions, but unless we can define comparability... Um, we won't know w- what we're actually investigating. And I've got a, a quote here from a psychometrician called Lewis Gutman, an American psychometrician, saying, ''Definitions are, of course, arbitrary. Basically, all that is formally required of a definition is that it be clear, that it enable reliable use of the concept concerned. A more informal heuristic desideratum is that it actually influenced theorists and researchers to progress in their work.'' <clears throat> well, have theorists and researchers progressed in their work... A few years ago, um, Paul himself um, and others edited a book produced by QCA talking about the state of play, really, in um, investigating comparability. And one of the chapters in that book by Joanne Baird was called Alternative Conceptions of Comparability. And in that chapter, she discussed at least six different definitions or conceptions of what comparability was, with names like cohort referencing, as Paul said, criterion referencing, weak criterion referencing catch-all definitions, conferred power definitions. So I think lots of researchers have been making progress in their own work, but their work is not always connected very well with other researchers' work because they've been using different definitions. And I think to a certain extent that's inevitable because um, comparability is such a a difficult concept. But since that book, there have been two insights that I think have been particularly helpful. First one um, from Paul on the importance of separating the definition of comparability from the method of investigating it. Previously, I think, these two had often become sort of blurred together, as in, this is what comparability is, because this is how we investigate it. Um, And a second contribution from um, Rob Coe at the Chem Centre in Durham. Um, Perhaps rather than focusing too much on um, standards, um, quite an emotive word, try to understand what it means for two examinations to be compared. So taking a step back from that I'm going to think about what is a comparison. So the elements of a comparison, the ingredients if you like, um, are one or more judges who are the people doing the comparing and they compare one or more objects, which are the things being compared, with respect to a single attribute and this is the thing that's the basis for the comparison. Um, it's a single attribute to compare with two attributes would effectively involve two comparisons. Um, And the result of this comparison is an ordering of the objects, um, with or without ties, you could say they're the same, but usually one has more of the attribute than the other. Unless, of course, the comparison makes no sense. Uh, An extreme example would be which is heavier, um, green or Tuesday. Um, The the category error means the comparison makes no sense. So, let's give a little example, and some people have seen seen this before. Um, If we have our judge as William Shakespeare... And our objects, thee and a summer's day. Um, In his sonnet, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. So we have two attributes here, two comparisons, one based on loveliness and one based on temperance. And um, thee seemed to win them both. And... um, in, in fact, I, I found out on uh, Wikipedia that scholars think that the was actually uh, a young man rather than a woman, which shows, uh, shows what I know about English literature. So, if the things we're comparing are two examinations, what attributes could we compare them on? Um, for example, we could compare them on the percentage achieving a given grade, basically raw pass rates. We could look at... Um, two examinations that have been taken by a group of common people, as in a group of people have taken both, and look at how their grades compared on each examination. We could look at the expected grade obtained by comparable candidates. Of course, this moves the problem of comparability back one step, and Paul was explaining in his last presentation that um, we could do that by looking at prior attainment. Um, A different um, thing we could look at would be the breadth or the depth of the syllabus um, that candidates studied before they take the examination, or we could try to work out what the demand of the assessment was, or we could look at the quality of work produced by examinees awarded the same grade. Conceptual and pragmatic considerations will affect which choice of um, attribute we want to look at. For example, if we want to look at the quality of work, um, we might not think it worthwhile to look at two completely different subjects. Um, in the 1970s, Bob Wood was saying it was a, a lunatic idea to imagine French and chemistry examiners sitting down at the same table to discuss standards. So, the ones that we've tended to have focused on in our recent work have been the demand of an assessment, which was defined by Pollitt et al. In the, in, the, in the QCA book that I, I showed earlier. And they distinguish between demands of a task or question... Um, The difficulty of a question, which is a statistical measure, basically how many people got it right. And the overall demand of an assessment, which is some kind of aggregate of the individual task or question demands. And then once you've defined demand, you have to try to um, produce some kind of index of it. And um, one index that we've used over the years has been something called the CRAS scale, a questionnaire that um, classifies questions according to the amount of complexity the resources that they require, the level of abstractness in the question and the strategy that the um, candidate needs to use to solve it. And that's essentially a qualitative tool, really, for comparing questions on the basis of demand. Of course, if if our ultimate interest is in comparing grades, we need to take note of this point that's been made many times. This was one actual quote I found. The most demanding papers can yield the most easily obtainable grades if grade boundaries are set low enough. So demand has to be factored into where the grade boundaries are set if you're looking at um, grade outcomes. If you're looking at the quality of an examinee's work, as we have done in quite a lot of our work, um, how do we define quality? Well, we tend not to. We tend to hope that experts in the particular subject can recognise quality when they see it, um, but we, we don't attempt to define it for them. In the jargon, we hope that they can share a common construct by which we mean that they can broadly agree on what is better and what is worse. If they're comparing work from different assessments, for example, if we're comparing one exam board's work in chemistry with another exam board's work in chemistry, or one year's work against a subsequent year's work, um, the judges must allow for differences in the overall demand of the questions and tasks in assessing the quality of performance. Now, how do we derive an index of quality, having defined it or having failed to define it in in, in that way? Well, the concept that we've been using is is the latent trait, which I'll illustrate on the next slide. And the method is of paired comparisons or paired comparison judgments. So, by the latent trait, um, I just simply mean an abstract line representing the attribute that we're trying to compare. So, in this um, illustration, loveliness is our latent trait... And we've located two people on it. And what we would like to do, as well as showing that one is above the other on the trait, we want to try to assign some numbers that sort of quantify their position. And what the paired comparison method does for us is that it allows us to estimate the distances apart on this latent trait on the basis of how often one object beats another in a paired comparison. So... This method was used in the 19th century in um, the field of psychophysics... ...where the judgments were about brightness of flashing lights or the loudness of sounds. And then in the early 20th century, um, Lewis Thurston applied it to psychological attributes... ...like the quality of handwriting or the seriousness of crime. Um, So as I said, the more often one object beats another, the further apart on the trait they are. And this of course requires your experts to make numerous comparisons of pairs of objects or rankings of three or more, in some kind of linked design where every object is either compared directly with every other object or indirectly via a third object. So what does the outcome of one of these um, studies look like? Well, on the x-axis of this graph we've got um, something I've called measure, which is essentially our estimate of the trait, the attribute, the thing that they had in common that we were comparing them on the basis of. And on the y-axis we've got a mark scale, And this example happens to be two tests from subsequent years. Tests of the same topic designed to the same specification. And let's say the pass mark on the 2003 test was 27. Um, We find the point that corresponds to that on the x-axis. And then find the mark on the 2004 test that corresponds to that same point. So the x-axis represents the perceived quality. And the y-axis, via these regression lines identifies pairs of marks that are comparable in terms of this attribute of perceived quality. Interpreting the outcome is um, not always straightforward. Um, There are numerous contentious issues that we've been grappling with over the years, some more serious than others. Um, Firstly, as I mentioned, there's this lack of definition of what we mean by quality. Um, Secondly, and perhaps more seriously, um, with the lack of criterion for the correct answer. In a sense, this method defines what the correct answer is, because we can't then say, yes, this was the result of this study, but in fact it produced the wrong answer, unless we have some independent means of saying what the right answer was, which would presumably require a different definition of comparability. Often the attributes that we're wanting them to make judgments on um, are very complex, made up of many micro-attributes. For example, uh, um, any examination performance might involve you know, writing skills, calculation skills argumentation skills and the, um, the judges will have to weight um, their opinions about what people have done um, and we might wonder whether they're weighting them in a valid way. Are they giving too much weight to things they shouldn't or, or less weight to things that they should um, attend to? Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the judges have to allow for overall demand when they're comparing different assessments. It seems implausible to somebody who isn't an expert in a subject like me that um, it will be very easy to do that but then perhaps you know the experience of these people who are normally people who have taught and examined the subjects in question perhaps does allow them to make those kind of allowances and finally how dissimilar can the assessments be before the comparison makes no sense and um, we've been again wrestling with that quite a lot recently because um, some a levels for example have um, a modular structure that might involve a, a coursework element or other components and that might be compared with, say with a in previous times, a linear examination where everything was done at the end of the course. And how, how can you make those, those overall comparisons? Right. That concludes my presentation, so I shall now hand over to, to Jackie.
4: So I'm talking about comparing different types of qualifications, alternative comparators. So many of the comparisons we've been talking about and and the comparators and the associated methods are all suitable for national examinations. But of course, not all qualifications and not all comparisons uh, expect us to make comparisons between uh, a national examination. So, for example, what can researchers do to compare qualifications or units which might be assessed by something other than an exam, maybe coursework or even observing workplace practice? And um, for some of the things that Tom was talking about in particular, the comparison of the quality of work, well, what if we don't happen to have artefacts to compare for these experts to look at? These are some of the challenges that researchers are faced with if they're going to be comparing different types of qualifications. Also, we have experienced some challenges in actually trying to get hold of samples of artefacts or evidence to make these comparisons with, depending on what kind of qualification we're dealing with. And so we may look to other kinds of comparators. The two... Alternative comparators that I'm going to talk about today are actually ones which have not been used a great deal by awarding bodies, to my knowledge, and those are returns to qualifications and educational taxonomies. The only large awarding body in the UK that I know of that has a history of looking at returns to qualifications is actually Pearson, who commissioned some people from London Economics last year to do some work in this area. And there are other alternative comparators, but these are the two we have time to look at today. So returns to qualifications, what on earth are they? They are a statistical measure from economics. So this is going to be an interesting presentation because I'm neither an economist nor a statistician. And they are also how much more on average is earned by people with a given qualification in contrast to similar people who don't have the qualification. Now that is a bit of an oversimplification but generally that is broadly what is meant by returns to qualifications. Researchers interpret these returns to qualifications in, in a variety of ways. They are sometimes taken to indicate the value of em- that employers attach to qualifications or to indicate how co- closely, excuse me, how closely qualifications match the skills and knowledge and personality attributes that are valued by employers. Sometimes they're used as a proxy for skills and on other occasions they're talked about as a proxy for productivity. Now productivity is somebody's skills, knowledge, competence and personality attributes which they use in a job or to produce goods and services which have some kind of economic value. So what research methods are used to compare qualifications in this way? Well, the first thing to notice is that very large surveys are used to make these comparisons. And these are summarised in the Wolf Report, which came out recently, which is probably very familiar to a number of you. And she mentions that the preferred survey databases are the Youth Cohort Study, the National Child Development Study and the 1970 British Cohort Study. Just to illustrate the size of these databases and what's going on with them, I had a quick look at the British Cohort Study, uh, which is on the Economic and Social Database Service website. It has over 8,000 respondents in it. It has over, sorry, it has nearly 3,000 variables and these variables include things like accommodation, employment, health, education and qualifications and over 1,400 variables are about education and qualifications. So these are pretty strong research tools. So I'm going to do a quick run through some results of these studies some selected results, you can't see any patterns from these, but just some selected results to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So Dalton et al found that there were significant positive returns to apprenticeships and degrees for men and to degrees and NVQ level two or more for women. These are our friends Conlon and Patrick Garney who are from London Economics and they tell us that Individuals in possession of RSA Level 2, City and Guilds Level 2 and BTEC Level 2 qualifications achieved 38.4%, 15.6% and 13.1% earnings premiums and only those in possession of MVQ Level 2s struggle to get any return to their qualifications. Also from their work, they say individuals in possession of BTEC Level 2 qualifications and five good GCSEs receive a 5.9% earnings premium compared to being in possession of five or more GCSEs only. So what's the strengths of these, this type of research that's going on? Well, some strengths include those longitudinal data sets that I was talking about earlier, which are big and, and important research tools one of the advantages that wolf talks about of these big data sets is that they don't expect people to remember their examination results over a long period of time and some of the american literature says that people aren't very good at reporting their exam results you know at telling you what grades and so on they got one of the other things that is important with this this kind of work is that the analysts who are doing the statistics can actually control for the effects of variables. So what do I mean by that? Controlling for a, variable means, for a variable means identifying the variable's effect by holding all other variables constant. And once the controlled variable's effect is identified, the effect of the qualifications on the returns can be measured more accurately. So it's really about trying to make sure you've got a good measure of what the the effect of the qualification is. So, an example is that Driden found returns to qualifications were more similar between academic and vocational qualifications when they actually controlled for the amount of time that was spent getting a qualification. Um, so, for example, it actually usually takes a longer amount of time to get an academic qualification than a vocational one, and that's why it's important to take that out statistically from your analysis so that it doesn't affect those figures about returns to qualifications. Another strength is that you don't necessarily have to have things in the same subject or occupation to make a comparison using these returns to qualifications because arguably arguably, the wage that you're working on is somewhat independent of the qualification system. Some other strengths are that you can actually compare qualifications in a number of different ways which aren't necessarily tappable by some of the other methods that exist. So that's not true of everything in this list, but a good number of them. So one thing that you can compare is the type of qualification which was done by Dalton and Drayden, And somebody called Sienassi C&A actually sums up a great deal of this literature by saying that academic qualifications generally get higher rewards or, or higher returns to qualifications. If You can also compare different levels of qualifications. So Dalton SL worked in that area. So, for example, you can compare MVQ Level 2 with a degree. Another area which has been done by other methods but can be done this way as well, is compare between awarding bodies. And this is the work that was funded by Pearson that was actually done by London Economics. And they compared between different awarding bodies by comparing BTEC, which is EdXL, versus sitting girls versus some RSA qualifications. Another area that I don't think we do so much of the, as the awarding bodies is to compare occupations, and Macintosh and Garrett did this. One of the things they talk about is, we find that in particular occupations, such as skilled manual occupations and personal services, and in particular industries, such as public administration, education and health, the estimated returns to NVQ 2 qualifications are positive and statistically significant. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting about this area is the comparisons that are made over time because Siles managed to compare over time between 1985 to 2003 and Macintosh managed to look at between 1996 and 2001. And um, quite often in other studies you might just look at from one year to another. And finally comparing progression routes was something that was done by Robinson and I don't know how many of you are familiar with ordinary national diplomas and higher national diplomas which is the HND and the OND. But having an HND or an HNC rather than an OND or an ONC is more than an extra 11 percentage points compared with the 16% point gain in earnings when a man with two A levels attains a first degree. So here we're comparing the progression route through vocational versus academic. So in summary by aggregating qualifications together within these big databases we can calculate returns to qualifications to different groups of things which may not otherwise have been compared using other methods there are also some weaknesses as well these qualifications don't necessarily cause these returns so one area where this can be a bit dangerous is that some people are concerned about this repeated finding of level one and level two MVQ qualifications having either a zero or a negative return to the qualification and some people have actually used that to argue that these qualifications are valueless or worthless however there is also research that explains that if you have one of these qualifications you are more likely to be employed or be employable later on than if you don't have one so obviously they are not exactly valueless One of the other limitations is that although these are big survey databases there are some things that they don't include and so you can't include those in your analyses and that is a limitation. Another problem is something a bit like what Tom was talking about where everything gets collapsed onto one scale so knowledge skills and competence are sometimes treated as unidimensional when they aren't necessarily. It's also possible to apply two valid statistical models to the same data and come out with different results Um, so like many other types of research you have to look at it from a number of different ways and see what the repeated patterns are the other problem is that sometimes people try and use these returns to qualifications to actually predict what will happen in the future by saying oh because people used to get a lot of money for that particular kind of qualification, that's the kind of qualification we need in the future. But that just assumes that our future world will be like the past one, and and so that's an inappropriate use of this kind of research. Moving on to the other comparator of educational taxonomies, many people will be familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, and this is a way of classifying education objectives. Bloom and his colleagues identified three different domains, cognitive, affective, psychomotor. In his original work in 1956, he and his colleagues outlined evaluation, synthesis, analysis, application, comprehension and knowledge. They didn't actually outline the affective and the psychomotor domains in that particular work. Those were worked on later and there are a whole series of taxonomies that exist. I recently looked at something that had about 50. And some people have used these taxonomies and taxonomies like them as a comparator. So one study I'm going to look at as an illustration is one by Carlson Matthews from quite some time ago. And they were trying to compare... GCE business with GMVQ business for those of you who may not remember GMVQs, GMVQs were a general vocational qualification meaning it had some work component but it was also a more general qualification. It was trying to go somewhere in between the two of vocational and academic. So to make this comparison Coles and Matthews took Bloom's taxonomy and two other taxonomies the reason that they took the additional taxonomies in addition to Bloom's cognitive taxonomy was that they didn't want to just use a cognitive comparator. They also wanted to have other things in there and these other two taxonomies do cover some other areas. And Coles and Matthews created this new taxonomy of content of the syllabus to cover breadth and depth and also skills which they listed as factual recall, understanding and explanation, planning, investigation analysis and evaluation, transferability, which they talk about as being adaptable and versatile, and the application of skills. In their study, they had three GCE experienced examiners, so A-level people, and three GMVQ external verifiers to make judgments. And all these people were provided with a syllabus or specification. They were called both at the time, interestingly. And They were also provided with guidance to centres and some recording sheets. And what the expert did was they gave a rating of low, medium or high to each criterion for the GCE and the GMVQ materials. And just to recap, the criterion were the breadth, the depth, the factual recall and so on. To analyse the data, they took low as a score of one, medium as a score of two and high as a score of three. And the score for each criterion was totaled for each qualification and expressed as a percentage of the two qualifications combined. Now this slide shows a mock-up of two fictitious qualifications with some fictitious data making a comparison. And you can see from this data that the uh, qualification one has greater breadth than qualification two. And they repeated that kind of thing for the GCE and for the GMVQ to compare them. QCA has used taxonomies in other studies. And the most recent one that I'm aware of is QCA 2008, which actually compares geography and history. So what are the strengths of this area? Well... Work from Angoff studies suggests that examiners are not that good at determining demand. And um, they're not that good at knowing what is more and less demanding. So one of the advantages of of these studies is that they are given a description of what is more and less demanding. And these taxonomies, if you choose the right ones, are based on research evidence. So that's one advantage. Another advantage is that the expert judgment used in these studies does draw from a community of practice that's related to the qualifications and often related to the actual enacted uh, qualification, not just what's written down in documents. And this is probably quite important at the moment, given Alison Wolfe's report, which is um, not very happy about just comparing documents for purposes of comparability. Some weaknesses of this area are, include that you need to choose your taxonomies carefully so that you don't avoid, so that you uh, don't become biased in what you're doing. So that goes back to what we were saying about causal Matthews. And also, although this is not document-based research entirely, you're not, going right back into centres and the everyday work in schools and colleges to do this research it's not replacing observations or multiple assessment judgments in conclusion both of these comparators I've talked about and their associated methods do have strengths and weaknesses and they do provide us with some comparability evidence But whatever you're doing in terms of research and comparability, the strongest evidence is when there is a clear pattern in results of several studies using different established research methods.
1: Thank you very much. I'm sure we'd all like to say thank you to our four presenters. Thank you very much.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment.
3: For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.